Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business show from the newsroom at Business in Vancouver. I'm Haley Wooden, executive editor at BIV. The operations of Canadian Crown Corporations are equivalent to about 7% of Canadian GDP. Their performance, however, could be improved by following a blueprint for good governance, according to a new report. Glenn Hodgson is a fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute. He has 36 years of experience in global and Canadian macroeconomics, international trade analysis and finance, fiscal and tax policy, and other big picture topics. He's the author of this report titled Finding Jewels Among the Crowns, a great title, Optimal Governance Principles for Canada's State-Owned Enterprises. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to join me. Hi, Haley. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Now, I thought we'd start out with what seems on the surface a, a pretty basic question, but I think one that's fundamental to the conversation we're going to have. Why do crown corporations exist? What purpose are they meant to serve? Well, that's a great place to start, Haley. Um, the, the crowns exist really to do two things simultaneously. First of all, they're an agent of public policy. They're, they're owned by governments. They are created because there's either a gap in the marketplace or some particular policy issue governments want to address. But secondly, crowns are a commercial entity. So governments basically use crowns to do public policy in a commercial way, to deliver services, to think about the bottom line as they're, as they're operating, not to function like a government department. They're very client-oriented. They're often very client-facing. So it's trying to get the balance right between that commercial, commercial role but really serving a public policy purpose. That's the balancing act for Crown Corporations. And how well does that balancing act tend to work? Because one might assume that perhaps the public policy perspective isn't always aligned with maybe the, the commercial or consumer facing goals. Well, you know, crown by crown, you see, I think you have to examine this on a crown by crown basis. And frankly, it's kind of like a daily struggle looking for the right balance point. I worked for a crown for 10 years. I worked for a federal company called Expert Development Canada, which is Canada's expert credit agency. And I was in a job where I was actually the advisor to the president on the public policy side, but the rest of the company thought they were a commercial company. They were behaving as if they were a bank or insurance company. So every day, as we were looking at transactions, we were looking at business strategies, we were trying to get the balance right. And I suspect the same notion exists in whether it's local crowns, provincial crowns, or federal crowns, maybe not daily, but every quarter, there'd have to be some kind of reckoning whether we get the, the balance point right. So a, a big crown like BC Hydro, for example, is there to provide utility, a pretty fundamental utility to all, all BC taxpayers and residents. Um, but it's not a profit maximizing company. It's there to ensure a public service is provided but also do it in a way that's very client-oriented. So think about BC Hydro, uh, the BC Insurance Company. There's a whole bunch of entities you can think in, in the Vancouver space where that balancing act is going on in the minds of the board and the CEO and the management team every day. Those are great examples. And I want to ask why the commercial aspect is important. For example, why couldn't there be a government division, for example, that is customer oriented or customer focused? Why would having a crown corporation model serve a better purpose and create a better end result? Well, your words there were very interesting. So a government department, which is service oriented, it's hard to reconcile that. You know, as a government department, your job is to give advice to a minister and then carry out the will of the government. So it, it, I call it propose and dispose. Where, where you're really advising and then enacting. But you're not thinking about the client first. You're actually not thinking about how to provide the best possible service to a customer. That's more of a corporate model. So a crown corporation is really wedding 
the policy intent of the Crown with trying to be a client-friendly, customer-friendly organization. And that really fits the commercial model much better than delivering as a government department. You can see the evolution. A place like Canada Post, for example, used to be a government department, and it had ongoing struggles. It was losing money. There was issues of things like productivity. So you started introducing more business language. And the Crown model became a much more effective way to deliver mail services than having it as a government department. Interesting. Now we know not all Crown corporations are the same. What are some of the different ways in which Crown Corps can be positioned in a market? Well, there's actually a whole bunch of different market positions. And often we as sort of citizens or taxpayers don't think about this. But let's go through the, the list. First of all, they can be a, a provider of last resort or a monopoly. So a monopoly would be somebody like BC Hydro, where there's a real advantage having scale, having one big producer and distributor of, of, uh, of power. Although of course Alberta does it differently. Alberta's come up with a different model. So that's one model. Uh, you can be a competitor in the marketplace. So Air Canada before it was privatized a long time ago, was actually competing head on within the CP and Ward Air and other airlines. And eventually it was decided the competition wasn't needed from a crown corporation. It had a big price advantage. So it was privatized. You could use a crown to be a complementary entity, actually trying to build the market space. Um, you can also have crowns that are partly privatized. Hydro One in Ontario was partly privatized uh, six or seven years ago. And it has that extra challenge of trying to ensure that the private shareholders are getting a good return on their money. So there's a lots of different forms of crowns. Some also get operating subsidies. So a crown like, uh, like Via Rail offers rail services. It is a kind of a last resort provider because the private sector didn't want to offer rail services anymore in certain parts of our economy. So Via was created, but it also doesn't make money. It gets an operating subsidy of about a quarter billion dollars a year. So that's a lot of money coming from the federal tre treasury, but the money's there to ensure that that service is provided. So, you know, as you go through the whole, the big long list of crown corporations, there's all sorts of different ways they can be positioned in the marketplace. And taking into account some of those differences, is it possible to come up with a list of objective, optimal standards for how crowns ought to be run across the board, or does it vary on a case-by-case -case basis? Well, I, I, I think that it is possible to come up with an objective list of at least conditions for governance. So that's what I, I focus on. You could then think about standards for financial performance, for, for service quality, things like that. But I focused on governance as the issue, taking a look at both kind of the overarching framework, the rules, the, the purpose of the crown, but then the kind of basic stuff that every corporation thinks about in terms of governance, which is pointing a board, you know, board chair, CEO, um, how to report, uh, how to set standards and, and performance objectives within the organization. So crowns really have what I call sort of two, two buckets or two frameworks. One is the overarching governance and the other is the more specific governance tools that it uses. Let's dive into some of those. So maybe we can start with the framework governance piece. What are some of the critical things to keep in mind or best practices from your perspective when it comes to framework governance? Well, framework governance starts with what does the crown exist? So what's its role, what's its purpose? There, I think it's really important to have kind of regular statements from the government confirming that that role is still valid. They still sort of validate that role. After that, you have to kind of define, we, we talked about the market positioning earlier. Um, the government should, should really decide with the Crown where in the market it should be positioned. Should it be a monopoly? 
Should it be a competitor? Should it be there to provide complementary service? What's its, what's its sort of ongoing purpose within the marketplace? It should have governing legislation because it is a public sector entity. There should be one minister in charge, not many, so that you have a clear line of accountability between the legislature, um, the, the, the government, and then the crown itself. And, and then another piece that's actually not quite present in, in Canada, I think there should be a review mechanism. I think crown's legislation should have an automatic review kind of every five or 10 years built into the legislation to make sure that it's actually respecting this mandate and performing the highest standards possible. So for me, that's kind of the elements of a, what, what I call framework governance in the paper. Interesting. And how about when it comes to some of the processes or the other forms of governance that exist? What are best practices? Well, those best practices would really draw, draw on private sector experience. So for example, I think the government should name the board chair and the board members, but the board should select the CEO, the chief executive officer, not the government. Because if the government appoints the CEO, you then could theoretically have a competition between the chair and the CEO, kind of both creating their channels of communication with the government. Whereas the accountability is very clear. If you have government appointing chair and the, the chair and the board then hire the CEO, it's very clear who reports to who in the structure. Um, but the government should give Crown's regular guidance on what their expectations are in terms of the public policy role, but also business deliverables. So I like the idea of, of, of a letter, like a mandate letter, coming from the minister to the Crown, ideally every year. The Crown should then take that and use it to the, develop an annual corporate plan, which the board would review and approve. You then send it to the government who approves. And then you have a full alignment between shareholder board and, and, and the operation, operating entity, what the purpose is. And of course, like every other corporation, you should roll that up with a, with a, a good annual report each year to actually tell the public what you did. So elements like that, which really draw on private sector practice are the key pieces of sort of specific governance, governance tools used by crown corporations. How often would you say does a board within a crown appoint a CEO versus government at the crown corporations that exist in Canada? Well, it's kind of a moving target. Uh, 30 years ago, when I started my career, nearly all, all CEOs of crowns were appointed by government. In fact, if you look at federal legislation, it still says in many crowns governing act that the government will appoint a CEO. But you know, you, you've seen the separation between CEO and board chair in private companies over the last 20 years. You're now seeing a, a movement toward the board appointing the CEO with the acknowledgement of the government. So I think that's a matter of good practice being adopted in crowns. More and more you're seeing it, on occasion you don't. That's often when you have trouble, when you do have a government, for example, intervening to fire a CEO, and it's happened a few times, and then appoint somebody else. Much better for the government to change the board chair. If they're not happy with the direction of the crown, change the board, let them select a new CEO if that's really the wish of the shareholder. You mentioned a bit earlier with your example of Via Rail that it's not making money. On the whole, how well do Crown Corporations tend to perform financially? And by that, I mean, are they profit centers or on the whole, are they intended and perhaps by design intended to break even? Well, Crowns collectively have a, a huge chunk of revenue. I mean, the, the revenue of Crowns is about $162 billion using 2019 data. So that's big. That's 7% of our economy right there. It's bigger than the oil and gas sector put together, bigger than Saskatchewan, Manitoba's economy together, or all of Atlantic Canada. So the revenue base is really strong. 
But to your point, they barely break even. In fact, they actually lose a little bit of money in, in most years. And I think that's a bit of a sore point that we should actually have much more explicit guidance from governments, what their expectations are in their financial performance. Because when your revenue base is over $150 billion, there's got to be some means of actually containing costs and being a bit more dynamic, a bit more like a private company and achieve more positive uh, financial results for taxpayers. Because if not, that there, there's always a risk that a loss-making crown will have to go back to the government with their cap out looking for a little bit of a contribution, which for me is not the very best model. If there's an explicit subsidy like for Via Rail, that's one thing. But if a crown's not, it's supposed to, to at least break even or make a bit of money and then can't. There's some, I think, some question there about the, whether you have all the right, the right sort of guidance in place for the, the crown's overall strategy. Could it be a, a complicating factor to have a crown corp that is profitable? It's one thing if it can cover all of its costs and break even. It's self-contained in that regard. I have the words balance the budget ringing in my ear. That's kind of yeah. a government best practice. But if there's profit generated and then questions about how to distribute that or what to do with it, does that not add a, maybe a, a complication to a crown corp's underlying purpose? Well, I, I personally would see that as a welcome complication. So I, I think there's a sweet spot for the operation of most crowns. Most crowns are not big money losers. They can actually operate on at least a break-even basis. I think the sweet spot is kind of earning um, more than the government cost of funds. So governments are borrowing money all the time. They have a kind of a cost of debt. Earning more than that means you have no cost to the taxpayer, whether direct or indirect. But you don't have to make as much as a firm in the private market does. So there's kind of a sweet spot between what governments pay for debt financing, for, for bond financing, and being a so-called profit maximizing firm. And if you make enough money, I don't see any reason why crowns can't have a dividend policy and return the money to the taxpayer or somehow uh, maybe make a contribution back to their, their customers, actually have a, a small rebate. There's ways for crowns to recycle the money and ensure they have sort of ongoing political support. Uh, I worked for a crown corporation that actually had a dividend policy. And yet it had a clear public policy purpose. And you know, there's a way to get together the public policy reason, commercial practices, and then your financial results. So ideally you would have a triple win. You would actually be delivering results on all three fronts. We actually have a good example of that in BC with ICBC because of fewer people on the roads during the pandemic, they issued rebates very recently to drivers because there were fewer crashes and as a result, fewer claims. I actually got the same offer from my private insurer in Ontario, but there you go. But it is an example where conditions change and a crown by thinking like a commercial entity can do things that a, a for-profit insurance company would do. And the report notes, and you mentioned the importance of having a review process in place. The report says purpose can evolve. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on how a crown corp might ideally respond to a purpose that evolves over time and, and how it can maybe not reinvent itself per se, but ensure that it's relevant and continuing to meet its goals and the needs of stakeholders. Well, let's take a, a real world example. So a crown that was delivering telephone services back in the 1980s. You know, when I started my career, there was no such thing as cell phones or mobile phones. There was landlines. And we either had crown corporations and provinces delivering telephone services or in Ontario and parts of Quebec, we had Bell, private company, but regulated to kind of keep their costs under control and their, their prices under control. And then suddenly handsets arrived and we had all this explosion of brilliant ICT technology and the market changed. And the crowds either had to evolve, which some of them did, 
or ultimately be privatized because there was a competitive uh, option there. So there's a case where we went from Crown Corporation in some provinces like Saskatchewan, the Crown still exists, by the way. So it's interesting how different provinces take different decisions because presumably because they want service for remote parts of the province, which they don't think private provider could provide. That's debatable, by the way. And, but the, the fact that change in technology meant that there was an evolution of how the market worked and we could go from a crown to a purely market-driven solution for telephone services shows you how the evolution happens. Another area might be a crown that goes from being a sole provider to suddenly having one or two private entrants and they are a, a competitor to ensure that there's enough choice to the market. Maybe there's only two firms who come into the market and the government decides that they need more than two firms to have real consumer choice so they ask a crown corporation to be the third provider, but not take over the entire market. So there are ways, and, and you kind of have to go crown by crown, um, segment by segment to find out what the right balance point is. Yeah, how difficult a challenge is it to evaluate effectively whether having a crown corp deliver a certain service is better to not having that crown in place? For example, with ICBC, it has a monopoly on basic auto insurance. How would government or ICBC itself go about evaluating whether it might be better to open the market up to entrants when we haven't really had that kind of scenario in BC in recent time? Well, I don't think there's a single template you can, you can use to do the evaluation. But that's the kind of thing that happens in governments after your finance ministry or your treasury board, the central agencies of government. I spent the first decade of my career at Finance Canada, and we would ask questions like that all the time. We would think about whether uh, Via Rail should be allowed to expand, should we be putting in, in place high-speed rail offered by Via, or should we just stop the service and rely upon bus service and, say, aircraft as a way to serve the market? So, you know, people, there, there are people within business and also within government who have the skills necessary to do that evaluation. And you're right, you have to think about public policy purpose, how much it's going to cost, what the competitive uh, in, impacts are going to be, you know, are there alternatives that are there? So I'll give you a real world example. Greyhound just left the intracity bus market in Canada. It, it actually ramped down during the pandemic. Now it's gone for the market. Should there be a crown corporation that actually steps in or is the market able to offer a solution? And I suspect that there's some brilliant people at the BC Finance and other places who are now kind of thinking about that because there is pressure for consumers to ensure there's adequate supply of, of, of services so people can actually travel from, from Vancouver to Kelowna, let's say, if they don't have a car. But you can also ride share now, so there's that alternative. Um, or maybe there's, there are some people who just can't find an alternative service, but it's not free. It comes at a price. All those factors would have to be considered uh, in deciding whether a, a crown would be the right solution or whether there's a better approach. That's a very interesting example. It makes me think too, of course, Air Canada no longer a crown court, but the discussions around providing a bit of a bailout and how uh, re-implementing rural routes and those that are traditionally not profitable is part of that. And I think the same analogy could perhaps be used with Greyhound, where there are certain routes that are perhaps not profitable, but when the one provider for that leaves the market, you have to think about, well, will somebody come in and actively out of the, the goodness of their own hearts in a private corporation model service those routes? And the answer is not always, yes, it might take additional conversations or incentives or things along those lines too. It might take incentives, but yeah. you also might want to recognize that a, a crown could perhaps be a player, but not have the same return on equity that Greyhound expect. I mean, Greyhound probably had a hurdle rate approaching, let's say, 10% ROE. 
Um, you may not be able to do that with a crown, but maybe if you accept the 5% ROE, you can have, a, have pricing for, for customers that's adequate to cover that. And then you're operating a no cost to the taxpayer. Or in some cases, there may just not be enough revenue from a route where government has to step in and be prepared to offer a subsidy. I, one thing that stood out to me in the report, you note that crown corporations are part of our daily lives as Canadians. You've talked about a number of examples where they are, that there's not a lot of research into how they're governed as a class. And I'm curious, one, why you wanted to look at this issue further and two, why there may not be a lot of research on crown corporations as a class. Well, I'll talk about me first because it's one of my favorite topics. Uh, I, I, I oversaw Crown Corporations when I was at Finance Canada early in my career. I then worked at a Crown, but I also was part of the team that did a review of EDC three years ago. So I've had kind of a, through an almost 40 year career, I've had a re recurring exposure and interest in Crown Corporations. Why are they being studied? Well, I think part of the answer is because they're spread across three levels of government. So actually deciding you're gonna study federal, provincial or local, local is very hard actually, we have really scattered data. So it's hard to analyze that except on kind of a crown by crown basis. They're also across many different sectors. So when you, know, when you do business analysis, you often look for, for sort of common traits, size of firm, geographic location, sector that you're in. Crowns are all the above. They come in all different sizes. They're kind of in every community in the country offering all sorts of different services. I would have thought that somebody would take an interest, for example, in, the, in, in our liquor boards, which are now liquor and cannabis boards, and study them as a group. I couldn't find any research on that on the academic side. I found a little bit from the schools of public policy in a couple of places, but it was really striking how little analysis there's been so far. And yet it is 7% of our economy. I mean, it's a big chunk of Canada's economy. So hopefully my paper is kind of a down payment on further analysis. I, I certainly am gonna sort of keep poking away and, and examining, using the paper as a framework to examine how, how crowns are operating. And of course, you focused on the governance piece. Are there other aspects that are of particular interest to you that might form the basis of future research? Oh, I think, I, I think financial performance is kind of the forgotten piece. I, I think of Crown Corporation is kind of a three-legged stool. We talked about their, their public policy purpose. That's why you have government ownership in the first place. Talked about commercial as a way to sort of provide service to customers. We've often neglected the financial piece, which is why we, you know, we talked earlier about crowns making a lot of revenue, like $162 billion of revenue is a lot of money, but barely breaking even. I think it's kind of neglected piece, neglected by shareholders, which is governments, and by the crowns themselves. So a little bit more of a conversation about whether there is, there's sort of appropriate reference points in terms of the expected return from crowns. I think would, would really enrich the conversation. Well, I hope this is the start of more conversation and more research to come. And Glenn, I want to thank you for joining the show. It's been very interesting to learn more about the report. Haley, it was a real pleasure. That's Glenn Hodgson, a fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute. He is the author of the report we've been discussing, Finding Jewels Among the Crown's Optimal Governance Principles for Canada's State-Owned Enterprises. You can find that report at cdhowe.org. Thank you so much for listening to BIV Today. You can subscribe to our show via your favorite podcast app for updates on new episodes. You can also find our archive of shows as well as subscribe by visiting biv.com audio. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be back with a new episode tomorrow.